treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. I think that materialism is one of, or perhaps the greatest danger to the people of the Christian church in America today. And I think it is a very sobering danger for our church too. You might think of the word materialism as synonymous with the word consumerism. What I mean is simply a mindset and a lifestyle that reflects a belief that what matters most to you is the accumulation of money and possessions and experiences. But in this text, Jesus takes aim at materialism and blows it away. He calls his hearers in that day and us today to set aside earthly treasure and instead pursue greater treasure, eternal treasure. He calls us to be single-minded in our lives, and he calls us to submit to God as master. How many professing Christians do you know whose lives are totally focused in single-minded passion and effort on eternal matters? Discipleship, worship, Growth in the putting off of sin and the putting on of good works. Growth in the knowledge of God. Growth in holiness. How many professing Christians do you know like that? And I don't mean just the doing. Our preacher last week, my dad, made a very, very important point about the doing not being what is most important, but the being. And so that is exactly what I mean. Not just doing discipleship and worship and putting off and putting on and growing in knowledge and, be, and seeking to, to do what's right, but being all about Jesus. They love to talk about Jesus more than anything else. They love to sing to Jesus. They love to sing about Jesus. They love to spend time in the word of God. They love to get on their face before God in prayer in order to draw closer to Jesus. They love to structure their life very meticulously and deliberately and even sacrificially in such a way that they can regularly and faithfully encourage and edify their fellow believers with Jesus and to tell others about Jesus. Or do the professing Christians that you know, including me and including you, seem to be more preoccupied with their careers, their favorite sports teams, the latest entertainment options and streaming service content, their own recreation and amusement, their savings account and retirement plan, or any other number of earthly 
matters. You see, in light of this passage, in these words from Jesus in his great sermon, I am greatly concerned for the hearts of the millions and millions of professing Christians in our culture, including some of us in this church, the hearts of my own family members and my own heart, because as I examine my own heart, as well as the rhythms and patterns of my family, and as I analyze what I observe in the Christian context in which I move and breathe today, what I see is a great epidemic of materialism and consumerism. It's as if this sort of fog has come over us, like we've become lulled to sleep by the soothing sounds of a, of a siren from ancient mythology, speaking lies and empty promises, lies that we don't have to give so sacrificially and generously, promises that the pleasures and treasures of this world are where rest and peace and satisfaction is found, lies that we should pursue the American dream, promises that if we can just have X amount of money in our savings account or finish this one more home improvement project or add to this collection or get these good grades so that we can then have a good career, our lives will be full and whole. But those are lies. Those are empty promises that cannot fulfill what they promise. And believing that true and lasting pleasure and treasure is to be found in this life and in this world is exactly what the devil wants you to believe. It is an insidious evil that has crept into the Western church. And if we're not careful... It can destroy us. And I don't mean it can take our salvation away from us. No, no. If you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, repenting of sin, and trusting in him alone, there is nothing that can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Praise God. But when I say that, when it can, when I say that it can destroy us, I mean that in two ways. Number one, it could destroy our local church. And number two, it could send unrepentant sinners to hell. Because it is the heart that says no to God as the greatest pleasure and treasure and that settles for the pleasures and treasures of this world that wind up in hell. Because God comes to ruined and sinful man with good news of salvation from the sin and the shame and the unholy pleasures and treasures of this world. But if that ruined and sinful person does not repent of sin and believe on Christ for salvation, they will get exactly what they want, which is a life filled with the pleasures and treasures of this world, but that ends in an eternity without the greatest treasure, God himself, and an eternity full of his perfect and glorious wrath poured out on them in judgment forever. But I also say it can destroy us because local churches whose members would rather orient their lives around their careers and their families and their athletic pursuits or their entertainment or their secret sins or their bank accounts will eventually become a church that is either dying or dead already. Ineffective in ministry, lacking in missional impact, distance from fellow members in the body, separation from the Lord's table, which would take in just a few minutes, anemic in the pursuit of spiritual growth because their lives are about this world, not heaven, about themselves, not God. 
But there is good news. Jesus has come with the message of the truth that clears away the fog and that silences the sirens that whisper or even shout to us empty promises and lies. There is a way for us to snap out of the fog of these delusional, nonsensical ideas. And that way is to be awakened by the truth of God's word, to be confronted and comforted with reality. Three realities I see in this text, and we need to be confronted and comforted by them. The first reality is this. Your treasure is in heaven. That is truth. Your treasure is in heaven. This is such a comfort to a believer's heart that is wearied by the rat race of pursuing treasure on earth and longing for something better. It's also convicting to the person whose life does not match the call of Christ and the call of God. Jesus is sort of beginning the second half of his great Sermon on the Mount. In the beginning of the sermon, he pointed to promises of blessings to his kingdom people. Then he called out the twisted version of the law that the Jews had lived by, and then he called out their hypocritical righteousness. Now he's shifting yet again, this time, to some explicit, imperative condemnations of sin. Do not statements, if you like. We had the you have heard it said statements, we heard the when you statements, you might call these do not statements. Do not lay up treasures in heaven in the passage for today. Do not be anxious in the next, and do not judge others in the one that follows. In fact, in the original language that Matthew wrote this in, the, these are more like stop statements because the, the grammar speaks more of stopping something that is happening rather than avoiding something that you might do. So stop laying up treasures in heaven, or on earth, excuse me. Stop being anxious and stop judging others. What Jesus is calling out in the first of these stop statements, if you will, is the love of earthly temporary treasure, the love of money, the love of wealth, the love of possessions, the love of success. Look at what he says in verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And then he contrasts that in verse 20 by saying, if you lay up treasures in heaven, moth, rust, thieves, don't have to worry about those. You see, in this time of, of world history, when Jesus was speaking, banking was in its infancy. Some of the concepts behind banking go all the way back to ancient Babylon, but ordinary people like you and me didn't have bank accounts like we do today. They had hiding spots in their houses for their valuables or specific places of storage for the things that, that were worth most to them. You know, when I was a, a young man with a paper route, I used to take some of the cash that I got on my paper route when I got uh, paid through my cousin who kind of oversaw me in that paper out. And I would remove one of the drop ceiling tiles in my bedroom, put it out of the way, stick the cash in there, and then put the drop ceiling tile back over its place so no one could find my money. I wanted to keep it safe. It's kind of like that. 
And so when Jesus speaks of laying up and of moths and of rust, he's quite literally speaking of the physical reality of storing your valuable clothes, your valuable metals, and other valuables in places and in ways that over time would be subject to corruption or breakdown or whatever else of these valuables. And he even talks about thieves, thieves as well. You keep your clothes in a wardrobe for very long and moths are going to get in there and holes are going to start showing up. You put your coins in a mildewy place for long enough where that moisture gets in there, it's going to start to corrode. And not only that, but if all your belongings and valuables are in your house or if you have a barn or whatever, those items are susceptible to robbers who could break into your home and remove all of your valuables and leave you impoverished. It's part of why banks and security systems are so important for us today. So is Jesus condemning the use then of savings accounts? I don't think so at all. If you read the the Proverbs, you'll see that the Bible wants us to be wise and future-minded with our money. And I don't think Jesus is necessarily condemning wealth in general. There were wealthy people in the Bible who used their wealth for good, and there are wealthy people today who use their wealth for good. And that is good. Clearly, there's more to what Jesus is saying here than just riches are bad. The point is in verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus is saying is that if your heart is set on earthly treasure, you're in trouble. Because moth, rust, thieves, just examples of what can happen to earthly treasure. Our hearts must be set on the eternal, heavenly treasures that are graciously given to God's kingdom people. As a kid, I loved stories about pirates and buried treasure, and I must confess I still do. The story of Treasure Island. Kids, have you heard of Treasure Island? Yeah, the story of Treasure Island captivated my imagination as a child, and by the way, that includes the Muppet version of Treasure Island. Just a fantastic film, am I right? (laughs) I heard that, amen. But for me, the less known 90s live-action movie called Shipwrecked, which is actually based on a Norwegian tale, is the one that I think of most when I think of treasure and the captivation of my imagination. There's this scene where the main character named Håkon Håkonsen, he's a Norwegian young man, is stranded on an island, and he comes across the buried treasure of the British pirate named Merrick in the story. And that scene was enchanting to me. He comes across this multiple chests that then are opened up and you see gems and jewelry and even clothing and weapons and tools. All these valuables that the pirate and his gang had amassed during their exploits. And it was exciting for me to imagine what it would be like to find and then own all of that stuff. I used to think, I could get all the Star Wars action figures I want. I could get all the CDs. I could ride my bike down to this great store downtown called the Bottom of the Ninth, where I could get all the baseball cards I want. The idea of treasure on this earth is mesmerizing and enticing, but in the end, it doesn't last. 
And if you say, well, I won't have the same problem that the Jews did because my money is digital and my investments are in equities or whatever, I say to you that you don't escape from the problem because one day you're going to die. And that money is going to mean nothing to you. Now, yes, you should care for your family. The scriptures are clear on that as well. And yes, if God has providentially made you a wealthy person and you can leave money for your children, praise God for that. But in the end, it's going to be used up. But more important than the fact that it will either expire or you'll die and you won't be able to access it anymore, more important than that, It can't live up to what you want from it. It can't satisfy that eternal longing that you have in your heart for peace and joy and rest. It can't ensure eternal life. It can't ensure lasting peace and satisfaction. Only heavenly treasure can do that. Only a relationship with God through Jesus can do that. That's why you're in trouble if your heart is set on earthly treasure. It won't work. It won't give you what you want. It will not leave you satisfied. It will leave you frustrated. It will leave you tired. It will leave you joyless. But if your heart is set on heavenly treasure... If your heart is set on things above, not things on the earth, as the Apostle Paul says. If your life is all about God, all about Jesus, all about the gospel, all about the kingdom of Christ, you will know nothing but satisfaction and peace and joy in the end. You'll suffer in this life. You will be tired. You will have frustrations, you will have troubles, you will have discouragement, but in the end, you will have peace and joy and love eternal. And even in this life, I promise you, because I've experienced it and I've seen you all experience it as well, even in this life, you will find greater joy in a relationship with Jesus than in the pursuit of earthly treasure. And so friends, this reality is one that we need so urgently. Our treasure is in heaven. Your greatest treasure is there. Your truest treasure is in God. He is our most treasured treasure. And when you realize that that's true, when God gets a hold of your heart and miraculously transforms you by the power of the gospel so that you turn from sin and turn to Christ and you realize that heavenly treasure is where it's at, man, then earthly treasure will suddenly be far less important to you. Money can be used for good. You should pursue those earthly monies wisely and carefully and lovingly. And so a healthy balance in your bank account can indeed be a good thing. But friends, your earthly treasure is only as valuable as its connection to being used for the sake of heavenly treasure. Did you hear that? Your earthly treasure is only as valuable as its connection to being used for the sake of heavenly treasure. Here's an example. 
Let's say our church has a savings account of $100,000 for the next 10 years, but then either Jesus returns or our church somehow closes its doors. What good was that money that just sat there for 10 years? Sure, it was a safety net for the highly unlikely case of some sort of emergency, but, and that can certainly be and is a wise thing to consider. But which do you think is better in light of this passage? Hold on to that $100,000 out of faithless fear in the name of being wise or prayerfully and carefully deploying those funds, even if it means risking our financial health in the immediate for the sake of the work of the ministry, for the advance of the gospel and for the good of the kingdom. You see what I mean? Taking risks for the sake of the eternal possible dividends of the kingdom of God is a good thing if the heart motivation behind it is truly gospel-aimed, kingdom-motivated, God-honoring, and Bible-based. Because, friends, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? What are we here for? Are we here to just maintain, and by here I mean literally Redeemer Bible Church, are we here to just maintain a nice little weekly worship service where we uh, get to see some of our closest friends, we get together for uh, this time of worship. Every now and then, maybe we'll, if we can fit into our schedule, we'll do a prayer lunch or a fellowship group, and in an extreme circumstance, maybe we'll engage someone in a gospel conversation with an unbeliever. Or are we here to be the kingdom people of God? Are we here to invest in earthly treasures or heavenly treasures? Are we here to dig deeper into our relationship with our greatest treasure, Jesus Christ? Are you here to spread the news of the riches that are found in Jesus Christ? What are we here for? What are you doing And you know, this kind of thinking ought to move us to be faithful and generous givers. As all of you who are members of Redeemer Bible Church know, our finances took a substantial hit after everything that happened during and after the COVID pandemic. And if we want to continue to be a faithful, word-preaching, Jesus-worshiping, gospel-proclaiming, missions-sending, believers-edifying light for the kingdom of God in Brighton, we're going to need people who are willing to invest in treasures in heaven more than treasures on earth, meaning to give sacrificially, to give in a way that might hurt you in this life, but that will pay eternal dividends. Otherwise, I say again, what are we doing here? What is this for? This is such a convicting thought for me, such a convicting thought for all of us. But there is great comfort found here too, and I don't want you to miss it. The fact that your greatest treasure is in heaven is a great comfort to weary and wounded souls. You keep looking for treasure and peace and joy and satisfaction in this world, you will come up short. But if you look to Jesus, you will be satisfied. That's comforting. And if you are already a believer, that's a promise for you. And so, my friend, if you want to do some spirit-led, Bible-based, gospel-saturated self-examination this morning, and you want to know what your treasure is, just use the words of Jesus. 
ask yourself, where is my heart? Because he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If and when you get a moment to yourself, what is it that you think about or do first? What is your typical day typically aimed at? What is it that you would think about all day if you had all day to think about it? What is it or who is it that you feel you could not live without? What would you be most upset about losing if you lost it? Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Brothers and sisters, reality number one, your treasure is in heaven. Reality number two is this, your focus is clear. This is kind of a fascinating little passage, verses 22 through 23, talking about eyes and lamps and health and darkness and so forth. At first glance, Christians may wonder what in the world it's doing here. Matthew uses the Greek adjective haplous when he records Jesus' words about a healthy eye. So that word you see healthy, if you're using an ESV like I am, is this Greek word haplous. But for the ESV, the translation of the word haplous to healthy is more of an interpretation than a translation. And I typically don't like to identify the Greek word unless it sounds like an English word that you're already familiar with, or in this case, like an exception that needs to be made because of how central a word is to understanding these verses. The word hoplus can be translated multiple ways. If you have a, a KJV, I believe you have the word single in front of you instead of healthy. You could also see it translated clear. You can also, as I have in my ESV, see the word healthy. And so it's not hard to understand how those words fit with what Jesus is saying. If your eye is single, if your eye is clear, there's clarity in what you're seeing. There's not darkness that's clouding the way you see things and think about things. It makes sense. The problem is that the following phrase contrasts this idea of the single eye with the bad eye. And there's really no debate about the interpretation of the word for bad eye. And so the question that many scholars and interpreters wrestle with is, how does a single eye contrast with a bad one? And what does even all of that have to do with the surrounding phrases from Jesus speaking about the love of money and possessions? And so some scholars have suggested that this is actually a wordplay on Jesus' part, because if you look at James chapter 1, verse 5, I have it on the screen for you, you see this exhortation to ask God who gives generously. And that word is the adverb haplos, which is very similar to haplous. Similarly, in Romans 12, 8, and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we see the noun generosity, the one who contributes in generosity, and then in 2 Corinthians, the generosity of your contribution. So we see the noun haplotes, generosity. And so you can see how these three words together are very, very, very similar. And so 
Why are we translating it, this word that really in its most common understanding of its, of its meaning, hoplous, as single? Why are we translating it single? Why are we translating it healthy when really these other words that are very similar to it are generously or generosity? So obviously there's questions about this, how to translate it, how to interpret it, and more, men more intelligent than I have translated it healthy in the ESV, good in the HCSB, and single in the KJV. These guys know what they're doing. So I think it's best to try to think of this passage, verses 22 and 23, as some kind of combination of the interpretive possibilities. I think that at the heart of what Jesus is saying in verses 22 and 23 is a call for a singleness of heart rather than double allegiance, which fits well with the context of the passage that follows right away, we'll see in just a moment here, regarding kingdom living when it comes to money, which is, of course, the context of this whole section. And of course, that then could mean generosity to the needy, to the work of the ministry, which we know Jesus cares about. He says it explicitly in black and white. It could also mean just being dedicated to giving faithfully to your local church, which the rest of the New Testament is equally crystal clear about. And it could also just be a spiritual call to treasure heavenly things, just like the previous passage states. And then, of course, to live like this is to live in a healthy manner, which is why I think some of these translators use the word healthy, for example, in the ESV. Now, I hope I didn't make that more confusing. I hope I helped you see a little bit where this is coming from. But I think the, the point is why I worded this reality this way. Our focus must be clear. It is clear for the people of God. There is clarity in our eyes. There is light rather than the fog and the, the mist or the darkness of not seeing clearly what God has called his people to. Money, possessions, wealth, luxury in this life are not what kingdom people are primarily concerned with. And being plugged into that reality will manifest itself in these possibilities of interpretation that I suggested to you. Single-mindedness in our devotion. Willingness to be generous with your giving instead of being stingy and selfish with it, with no care for the needy, or fearful in the, in the name, falsely, of wisdom. So that's the second reality. Here is the third one. Your master is God. There's a lot of conviction and comfort for us here too. And this one is going to carry over into the next passage that Pastor Brian will preach for us next Sunday. What Jesus is clearly talking about here in verse 24 is money. And it is the theme of this whole section. Verses 19 through 21, clearly also about treasures on earth. 22 through 23, it's a little less clear, but I think it's because of the context and this understanding of the interpretation of these words has to do with money. And then verse 24 clearly is. And then interestingly, verses 25 through 34 is connected to it so explicitly by that wonderful little word you see at the very beginning of verse 25, therefore. And so you'll hear more, a little bit more, about verse 24 from Pastor Brian next week, just as you hear a little bit about it from me now. But for now, in the context of verses 19 through 23, hear these words of Jesus again. 
In light of the treasures on earth stuff, in light of the, the seeing clearly, focusing clearly in verses 22 through 23 stuff, he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Friends, you can't do it. You can't. You can't be a servant of God and also obsessed with the treasures of this world. It's not possible. Jesus says you can't. You can't do it. And you might say, well, I've had two jobs before, so technically you can serve two masters. But that's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. In the original context of Jesus' speaking and Matthew's writing, what Jesus said was precisely true. Because servanthood in that culture was more like slavery than gainful employment. You didn't have two part-time jobs. I suppose there may have been an exception that you know, history hasn't told us about. But the point is, to be a servant was to be owned by your master. And therefore, when Jesus says that you cannot be divided in your allegiance to multiple masters, he is exactly right. Friends, our 21st century evangelical American Christian culture is by and large lacking in an understanding that God is our master. We are his bond servants, as the Apostle Paul puts it. We are here for him. You exist for him. We belong to him. Our purpose in this life is to serve him. So the point Jesus is making here is connected to the one he made in Luke 14, 33, where Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Friends, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. You cannot be part of the kingdom of heaven. You cannot be a Christian if you are not willing to renounce everything that you have in order to follow him. Remember, what was the issue with the rich young man? Turn with me just a few pages to Matthew chapter 19, and let's look. Let's see what the issue was with the rich young man. Matthew 19, verse 21, right at the end of that verse. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have, there's our phrase, treasure in heaven, and come. Follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He came to Jesus and wanted to follow him. He thought himself a nice young man with a lot to offer the kingdom of God. But what tripped him up? Was it the Ten Commandments? No. By his own account, he said he had followed them since his youth. It was when Jesus called him to sell everything that he had and give it to the poor and follow him. And what did the rich young man do when he heard this? He went away sorrowful. He turned his back on Jesus. He did not follow him. Oh, my friends, the love of money is a great evil and it is due to the love of money that many, like the rich young man, will never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus went on to say that very thing in the verses that follow, right after it, in verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so I ask you, if God's mission comes second to your career ambitions, who's your master? If time in fellowship with God or time in fellowship with his church comes second to your entertainment and recreation, which one is your master? If money is your master, if anything else is your master, God isn't. Jesus said it. You can't be a slave to two Masters, you are fully owned by the one that you serve. Now, obviously, this is hugely convicting, but it's massively comforting too. Because, Christian friend, listen, your master is God. That's good news for you. The Apostle Paul said on more than one occasion to his readers, You were bought with a price. You have been redeemed. You have been purchased by God. You're his. And now he is your master. You are no longer a slave to this world. You are no longer bound by the empty promises of pleasure and joy and satisfaction in this world. My dearly beloved friend, you have been freed to be a servant of God if you are a Christian God loved you so much that he sent his only son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice that sinners need to be restored to God. And then Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of God, paid the price for sin, and rose victorious from the grave in triumph over sin so that you could be free to serve him. And that's good news. That's the good news. And if you're here today and you've never turned to Jesus for salvation, you've never repented of sin and trusted in Jesus as your only Savior, you can do that today and be freed to have God as your master instead of the empty promises and lies of this world. You can know what it means to be part of his kingdom now instead of the kingdom of this world. And if you're part of God's kingdom, you serve him now. And that's good news. You know why? Because he is a good and gracious king. And so, if your earthly treasure, your possessions, your wealth, your savings account, your money is of greater or more common concern to you than the kingdom of God, then you might not even be part of it because you cannot serve two masters. You are a master, you are a servant of the master of God or the money and treasures of this world. My friends, materialism, consumerism is at odds with the kingdom of God. It is sin. Because God's kingdom is not bound up in the fleshly and temporal matters of this world. It is focused on the mission of God to bring sinners to himself in salvation and the restoration of a relationship with him. That is what the kingdom of God is about. 
And so as I read this passage, I'm asking myself, how could I obsess about a sports team more than I obsess over who God is, what he has done, and what he is doing now? How could I spend more time in front of a video game or a movie or a TV show than I spend learning about God, praying to him, fellowshipping with his people, serving his great commission? How could I pour dollar after dollar into my bank account with little to no concern about the budgetary needs of this church, the ministers of the gospel around the world like Neil and Beth and the rest of the Marseille team, and the needy and destitute around us? As I said at the very beginning, Jesus takes aim at materialism in this passage and just blows it away. He says, stop being so focused on earthly treasure and plug into reality. Reality is that heavenly treasure is better. Your focus as a kingdom servant of God is clear and God is your master, not the world, not money. And so, may God protect us from the lies and empty promises of the world that tell us that satisfaction is found in earthly treasure. And may we pray like this prayer of a Puritan from many years ago, found in the Valley of Vision. Grant us to know always that to walk with Jesus makes other interests a shadow and a dream. Keep us from intermittent attention to eternal things. Save us Did you catch that? Intermittent attention to eternal things. Save us from that. Save us from the delusion of those who fail to go far in Christianity. From from the delusion of those who are concerned but not converted truly. Those who have another heart but not a new one. Those who have light and zeal and confidence but not Christ. Teach us to place our happiness in Thee the blessed God, never seeking life among the dead things of earth or asking for that which satisfies the deluded. But may we prize the light of thy smile, implore the joy of thy salvation, find our heaven in thee. And then may we sing forevermore as we will in just a few minutes, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's pray. Almighty God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Graciously please grant that your word, which we have heard, may be inscribed inwardly on our hearts. As we receive your word meekly, with affection, may our hearts be filled with love and reverence for you. Cause us to bear the fruit of the Spirit and to live in holiness, diligently following your commandments. And may it please you to use us to lead those who are lost and wandering and confused into the way of the truth. All of this we pray for the honor and praise of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's take a few moments and meditate together. Actually, before we do that, let me just say this um, about our time of communion.
because then a, a time of meditation is perfect after that. We're going to take the Lord's table in just a moment here. And one of the clear instructions from the scriptures is that when we approach the Lord's table, we must do so with a measure of sobriety. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 calls for a seriousness about the Lord's Supper and not taking of the bread or drinking of the cup, he says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, in an unworthy manner. And he calls in verse 28, let a person examine himself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning eats and drinks judgment on himself. The Lord's table, the, the little piece of bread and the little drink of, of the vine is a symbol of the reality of the gospel that we celebrate because of what Jesus has done for us. And so this table is for God's people. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you've never trusted in Christ, I would love for you to just watch God's people partake of the table and see this drama, if you will, of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ and let it preach a gospel sermon to you. And I would pray that you would turn to Christ today because of what, in part because of what you've seen in the Lord's table today. But if you are a believer, follow these words of scripture. Let a man examine himself and not take of the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. So in light of that, and in anticipation of the Lord's table, of which we'll take in just a moment, let's meditate quietly and pray in light of the scriptures we saw in the sermon and in light of the Lord's table. Amen. As we go to the Lord's table now, let's 